spoken into our, le- our volunteers, they've spoken into our leadership, and they have for sure spoken into the life of Sister Buford and I. And I want him to come, and I want him to preach, and I want him to speak into the life of each and every one of you that are here. It's a little bit selfish. I have missed the voice of my pastor, and I can't wait to hear you preach, Brother Jordan. But would you come, and would you give us the word of God? Can we give the Jordans a warm lighthouse welcome as they come? Thank you very much, Pastor Buford. It's a little bit uh, awkward for me to call him Pastor Buford because I always just called him Brandon uh, back in the Toledo days. But uh, we're very happy to be able to be here in the church that he pastors and uh, to enjoy the presence of the Lord uh, with all of you. God bless you. What a great group of people. What a it's just an awesome sight to see uh, this church pastored by the uh, one-time youth leader of our church back in Toledo. And God's doing great things uh, here through uh, Brother and Sister Buford. God bless you. You may be seated. The uh, Bufords, you know, this morning when we walked out of the motel, this uh, wind hit us and uh, blew us away. And it reminded me of the way the Bufords came to Toledo. It was a uh, it was a whirlwind, and uh, they changed a lot of things. Uh, he had before it was over. He had us riding horseback. He had us uh, dressed up in uh, in uh, armor of Roman soldiers and tromping around in the woods. Um, he remembers those days, uh, I'm sure, as well. But um, And then during that time, we had a um, kind of a revolution in our church uh, in which we talked about reimagining church and uh, looked at, took a hard look at some of the ways that we did things uh, in the past and wondered how we could change them, not the message, but the methods, uh, to uh, uh, appeal to people and to uh, connect with the uh, with the present generation, and they were a part of that, uh, and it was uh, was truly an amazing time. We are so appreciative of uh, brother and sister uh, Buford and the work that they did in Toledo. It does not surprise me that they are so successful in pastoring this church. I believe you had nine people that voted the first uh, service uh, for them to become pastor, and now uh, it's up to 140. And I don't, uh, I don't uh, see any reason why it's not going to be uh, double that and triple that and quadruple that in the future as God blesses you. I believe God's going to provide you more property and more ability to uh, build a greater place to hold all the people. Amen. Because really this is not the church. Some people say, oh, there's a church on this corner and there's a church on that corner. No, there's a church building. There is a house of worship perhaps, but not the church because you are the church. The church is not uh, brick and mortar and carpets and lights and and, uh, sheetrock. 
the church is the, the, the people who are living and who are vessels of the, the Spirit of God. That's who the church really is, and that's why uh, I believe there is just no limit to what God is going to do in this community. Amen. And uh, I'm thrilled also that, as you know, our headquarters building, um, headquarters uh uh, staff is located in this area and with a new uh, location of our world headquarters this is perhaps the closest church uh, to that uh, that place and I'm uh, thankful for that and I believe that uh, this is going to have an impact on them and they will have an impact on you and on this church uh, some great, great things in store for you. If I were you, I would just get really involved. And let me just say this. You need to be involved 100% with the vision of your pastor. Amen. Whatever he, he is, the direction the Lord has given him, I believe he's got the, the commitment and the energy uh, and, the, and the desire to do that. And uh, you need to just say, God, help me to tie into that vision because we're going to go places in the Lord. Amen. So uh, just a, a word to the wise uh, in that regard. Praise God. But uh, I, I am very grateful to be here and uh, to have a, a chance to speak to your leadership um, because everything rises and falls on the leadership. My, uh, my pastor, my predecessor, Brother Fred Kinsey, would always make sure that I knew that, that everything starts at the top as far as he was concerned. Leadership is so important. And so uh, it's uh, been a privilege for me to speak to the leaders of this church and have just a little bit to, uh, to say about them and their vision and so forth. Uh, and I appreciate that. It's important for uh, sometimes us to come away. In fact, I was reading the, the Song of Solomon today about uh, the uh, desire of, uh, of the bridegroom to come away with his bride, with his loved one, his fair one. He said, let's come away. There, there's a time when we need to come away. And you know what? Today, in, these, in the world we live in today, are, are you about sick of all the politics and, and all the political ads and all the stuff that people are saying about each other and tearing each other down and, and all the negativity that goes on. I, it's wonderful to be able to come in on the, on the Sunday before this election and just come away and leave all that outside and say, God, we just want to be here in your presence. We want to feel your spirit in our lives because that brings life and that brings uh, strength and hope to us. Praise God. Well, Hallelujah. It's great to be here. I, I want to preach to you this morning, uh, hopefully on something that will uh, inspire you. Uh, I don't think that you come to church to be depressed. You don't come to be uh, horsewhipped. You come to be inspired. Amen. Uh, if, if we were going to say a lot of negative things, there certainly would be a, a lot of 
uh, a lot of fodder, a lot of fuel, a lot of reason to do that because nobody's perfect. And if we focus on your imperfections, uh, all of us would be in trouble. Uh, but uh, it's important for me because what God did, Brother Buford uh, referenced that this morning about the angels. The angels did not receive mercy and grace from God, but he looked at us in our sinful state, and instead of magnifying our sins, he uh, found a way for us to be saved out of our sins and to be a, uh, a credit to him and bring him glory. And so that's what I hope to do today uh, as I preach. Praise God. Luke chapter 6, and beginning with verse 7, is where I would like to focus your attention this morning. An incident that happened in the life of Jesus as he dealt with the Pharisees uh, that were always against him. They were always negative toward him and what he was trying to do. But Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 7, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day. Now, to me, from the get-go, that seems uh, real strange that, that they would be uh, critical of healing on the Sabbath day. Of course, if, if they need, were in need of healing, uh, I'm sure that they would be more than glad to have uh, someone to come along and say, you're, you're going to be better today. I don't care if it is the Sabbath day. But this is what they were doing. They were watching him with a critical eye that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man which, which had the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life, or to destroy it. And looking round about upon them all, he said to the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And they were filled with madness and consumed, or communed rather, one, one with another what they might do to Jesus. I want to speak to you this morning on this topic, uh, and this is uh, predates the song by uh, the same or on the same topic. I want to speak to you on something worth saving. Something worth saving. This incident in the ministry of Jesus is another time which he had a dispute with the Pharisees about the law. Uh, it appeared as though they were interested in keeping the law, uh, but in, and especially the letter of the law, but in reality, they were only interested in finding a way to accuse the Lord of some wrongdoing and stop his ministry because his ministry was a threat to them. You might know that the reason sometimes you get criticized for doing good is because your goodness, your good deeds are a threat to people who are not so good. They don't like to be in the company of someone that's better than them. 
and because it makes them feel bad in their, as far as they're concerned. But as I read this passage, I find a, a fascinating insight into the great theme of the Scripture and even of the mission of Christ himself uh, in this, this world. He, he asks a question that uh, really eclipses the particular concern of the Pharisees and their, their quibbling over the Sabbath. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And uh, if you'll allow me to, I would like to reduce this question down to its most basic form. And that is this. Is it lawful to save life? Is it lawful to save life? Blinded by their uh, quasi-religious bigotry, the, the Pharisees could not see that the far more important question is simply this. Is there something worth saving? Is it possible that God sees something deep down into the heart of a man, something precious, something pitiful, something worthy of salvation, even at the expense of confounding everybody else? This question is alive and well today in our society. Is there something worth saving? Is there something that could cause a holy God to reach down into a holy, unholy sinner and gather him into his arms? Can, can a righteous God find a way to save an unrighteous man or woman or boy or girl? Can, can God dig through the piles of sin and shame, as it were, in search of something worth saving? That is the question. Romans chapter 5, Paul treats this question this way. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, powerless Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a great gospel news that is. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation for if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man Jesus Christ this one man Jesus Christ was on a mission 
It was a mission to save. I hope that you understand this. I don't know what your background may be. I don't know what the slant of your particular attitude may be. I don't know how you feel about righteousness or unrighteousness, but I will tell you this, that Jesus Christ was on a mission to save. It was not a mission to condemn. It was a mission to save. The Bible says, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. I'm not here this morning to condemn anybody. I'm not here to tell anybody that you are so sinful and so shameful that you don't have any right to even be in the house of God. That was the, uh, the unfortunate uh, subject of uh, a man long ago in American history named Jonathan Edwards uh, who preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I don't know how many people that he turned away from Christianity that day and ever since then, but that's the wrong message. I'm not talking, I'm not worried about a God who is angry with me and wants to find a way to send me to hell. I'm so thankful that I'm serving a God who loves me and tried to find a way to save me. Praise God, praise God. So we know that he came. We know what he did in order to save lost mankind. We know the story of the death of the burial and resurrection. We know uh, what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. We know about repentance and water baptism in Jesus' name and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. We know the how of salvation. Apostolics are well-versed in the how of salvation. But I wonder if we don't measure up in this other question, and that is the question of why. Because the question of how is preceded by the question of why. Why did he do it? When you walk up and down the street and when you see people in uh, the grocery store, the supermarket, the, the mall, the, the, uh, uh, the, the factory or the office or where you work, do you, do you see them as those who have not yet been baptized, not received the Holy Ghost? Or do you see them in the light of why did God do this? Why did he do it? Why did he bother? What did he see in me or in you to motivate him to such profound suffering? What did he see that was worth saving. A man came up to me quite some time ago after the graveside service of one of our ministers, Pastor David Richard, and he showed me a picture. It was a picture of a baseball. He had retrieved it from an estate sale along with a pickup truck load of of other things, you know, the usual boxes of odds and ends that uh, that sellers often uh, uh, throw together and uh, just put out there and offer it as just a convenient way to get rid of a lot of junk. Now, uh, the reason this man showed me a picture of the baseball and not the real thing is that the real thing turned out to be an item of such huge importance that he couldn't just carry it around. It was a signed Hall of Fame baseball of one of the greatest 
baseball players who has ever played the game. His name was Babe Ruth. And so it piqued my curiosity a little bit, and I went home and Googled baseballs by Babe Ruth. And a little research showed that there was another baseball that Babe Ruth hit as one of his 714 home runs that now sells for around $40,000. Well, I venture to say that the owner of that estate had no idea there was something so valuable that it was in one of those boxes. You know, he probably could have kept that baseball and just uh, sold or walked away from anything else and he would have come out ahead. But his, his assessment, there was nothing worth saving. Have you ever tried to decide whether or not you were going to save something or throw it away? You know... You hold it up and look at it, think about it. What in the world am I ever going to, what good is this going to do me? Will I be using this a year from now? And uh, a lot of times people use that as a criteria. If I'm not, if I don't see myself using this, it's just taking up space. It's just gathering dust and I'm going to throw it away. We want to know that and also we want to know how much is this worth. There's some things you won't even put in a garage sale because you know it's not going to be worth anything. So you just throw it away. Well, in my house, it's just, there's just an old clock. It sits on the mantel in the family room. Just a few pieces of wood uh, screwed and glued together. A few gears on the inside and uh, a... Uh, glass front over the numbers and the hands it's probably not old enough to be an antique and you have to wind it up every eight days to keep it running and it's not even all that beautiful I'll, I would say it's, it's just borders on ugly and plain somewhere in there and it's certainly not worth $40,000 it's not even worth $4,000. In fact, guess what? I looked it up again. eBay says it might be worth $69. So I have it. Because aside from my father's book collection, it's all I have left from the old family home, old family estate. All the things I could have had when we cleaned out the old place and put it up for sale, this is the thing that I wanted. I, I didn't want the others, the, the, the pictures and the, the china and the whatnots and the hundreds of other little things that my mother had sitting around, things that make up a, a house to live in. I, I just wanted that clock. That clock was a wedding gift that my grandfather and grandmother on my mother's side gave to her and to my father when they were married in 1935. It's just a memory token to me, and that's all the value that it really has. But when I see that clock, I see just this happy young couple on their way 
to enjoy 47 years of marital bliss, uh, a rich and re rewarding life. I see, I see a pair of, of uh, grandparents that were satisfied that they had done their job and they were waiting in great anticipation for their first grandchild. That's what that clock means to be. That's something worth saving. My question this morning is this. When God looked down and saw you, what did he see? What did he see worth saving? Think of the many times that God had to look down over the ruins of his creation and make an assessment. Remember Adam and Eve after their transgression in the garden. God looked at them and he asked them, in fact he said, Adam, where are you? He did not ask that question in rancor and, uh, and in disgust. Sister Vesta Mangan says he, he asked that question with a sob. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? I missed you. I didn't see you last night. Where are you? God did not destroy them. He found a way to save them. He made coats of skins from, from our uh, uh, coats from of animal skins, and yes, he banished them from the garden, but he preserved their lives. And then we read this story in the sixth chapter of Genesis, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart where it was only evil continually. And if you can believe this, you have to because in the scripture. But the scripture says, and it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. And then we come to verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God, when he looked over that, that, that uh, destruction of his creation, something caught his eye. There was a man that was walking upright. God saw something in Noah. He saw something worth saving. Noah was going to be the bridge over which the generations of mankind would travel to get past the flood. That's what God saw in Noah. What did God see in so many of the patriarchs and the prophets of the Old Testament? What did he see in Abraham? And what did he see in Jacob? And what did he see in the 12 sons of Jacob and what did he see in Samson and what did he see in David and what did he see in Simon Peter I'm not saying that we have we've done anything to deserve salvation or to be worthy of the blood that was shed on the cross for us I'm only saying that God must have wanted us to be saved for a divine purpose or else he would not have gone to that cross evidently he saw something worth saving if I had the time I'd walk down through this congregation this morning and ask each of you what did God see in you what did he see in you 
the seed talent oh my friend he's seen talent a lot more than anyone here has did he see beauty well I'll grant you there's some here very nice looking people but you know God from the beginning of time has seen a lot of beautiful people was it, was it your money oh no I don't think anybody here has enough money to impress the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the gold in them hills and someone said the potatoes in them their hills too. God has more money than you could ever tempt him with. He didn't see anything in you concerning all of those carnal criteria, but God saw something in you that made him say, I can save you. I can save you. You have caught my eye. You have stopped me. You have made me pause and take another look at you and say, I can save you. That's why you're here this morning because God made a choice when he stopped by your house. He said, come on with me and you can be saved. Now there are two reasons why I believe that God saved you. First of all, he saw something of himself in you. Genesis chapter 1 Verses 26 and 27, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. You are God's creation. Satan has tried to destroy you. He has contaminated you, each of us, with sin. But God sees past all of that sin and all of that shame and all of that destruction. He says there's something deep down inside. There's something in you that I want. I refuse to let Satan destroy my handiwork. You see these arms? These were arms were created to wave before the Lord and to worship him. This tongue, it was made to give praise to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. These hands, these were made to a work for God. Your body, my friend, was not made for sin. That's why sin is so destructive. Your body was not made to mutilate. Your lungs were not made for smoke. Your brain was not made to be twisted and fried by drugs. Your mind was not made for evil thoughts. God brought you into this world to be a reflection of his power and of his glory. That's how you're going to receive or achieve your greatest purpose in this life. Hallelujah. Uh, you know, when they accused Jesus not paying his taxes, he said, give me a coin. And they brought him a coin. He said, whose inscription is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. Jesus said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but unto God the things that are God's. Whose imprint do you have on your life? 
if God has his impression on you and he has sees a part of himself in you then that means you belong to him you're not here for yourself and you're not here for the devil and you're not here for the world you are here for God because render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's but unto God the things that are God if God is, has impression on my life then I belong to God and he belongs to me hallelujah so there's some, God sees something of himself in you. That's why he saved you. Well, the second reason is this. God saw you as a part of his work in this world. We say that again. God saw you as a part of his work in this world. Uh, this is the first time I've preached in this particular to this church congregation so I do not know you some of you I have heard of because uh, you have been in some phase of ministry uh, but uh, the vast majority of you I, I do not know and so I don't know what your thoughts are about yourself and your uh, the attributes and the qualities that you can give to God and he can use you. I don't know how you feel about that. I do know that many people, perhaps the, the, the rank and file of the church uh, has a difficult time believing that they are all that important. Most people say, you know, I, I just, I, it's a big struggle for me even to, to get here on a Sunday and, uh, and be in the service. And if I can do that, then uh, that, that's more than I could ever imagine. But God has something even beyond that for you to do. He sees you as a part of his work in this world. Now imagine that. I'm going to explain this a little bit, but I want you to just imagine that for a moment. I want you to just kind of try to grab, wrap your, your mind around that, that God sees you as a part of his work in this world. The great almighty God, King of kings, Lord of lords, Alpha and Omega, he looks down and sees you, whatever your name is, and wherever you live, and whatever you do for a living, God has pinpointed you. His, has, his crosshairs are on you. And he says, sir, ma'am, I have a, a role for you to play in my kingdom. I have something for you to do. God saw something worth saving in you because he needs you to be an extension of his own hand into this world. God will not act unilaterally to accomplish his purposes in this world. And I think that that's probably where many people are. Say, well, I can't do anything. God, you have all power. You can, you can do it. You can save that person. You can heal that person. You can uh, deliver that person. You can uh, get them off of drugs and so forth. I, I don't, Lord, I know there's people out there that, that don't know you. You can reveal yourself to them. As though God is willing to act unilaterally or all by himself to accomplish his purposes in this world. 
I'm telling you today, maybe it's the very first time you've ever heard it, but God wants you to be a part of his work in this world. He wants to include you and me in his plans. God is not satisfied with a king slash subject or boss slash worker relationship. He wants you as his friend, as his confidant, as his espoused wife, as his companion, as his sharer. Therefore, God wants to enfold his own acts into the acts of man. I know there are times when, when Pastor Buford calls the church into an organized effort to, to fast and pray so that we can somehow see the will of God accomplished in the church or in the community. It's important that you know what role you play in this. And it's even more important that you feel an individual and personal relationship with God and his church in this endeavor. This is God's plan. Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. And he said to them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name shall they cast out devils they shall speak with new tongues they shall take up serpents and if they drink any deadly thing it shall not hurt them they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover so then after the Lord had spoken unto them he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God and they went forth and preached everywhere the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following that phrase the Lord working with them comes from two Greek words, soon ergos. You've seen it translated in other places as synergy. Synergy is actually a Greek word, means working together. Synergy means, in the chemical world, a combined action or functioning synergism, the cooperative action of two or more muscles or nerves or forces or chemicals, the cooperative action of two or more stimuli or drugs. In other words, the one substance, the one element by itself can do nothing until the other element combines with that. And then there can be a reaction. Then there can be something to take place that will transform both of those elements into something powerful. I want you to understand this morning that God is a force and God is a power, but I am also, and you are also a force and a power, but my power is worthless unless it works in synergy with God's power. God sees something worth saving in you because he sees an opportunity to get his will done in this life through you. God binds himself to any man, woman, boy, or girl who will enter into this special relationship with him. Now, I know we're getting in some, some deep areas here, but uh, you, you need to understand that the, the church, we're just not a mutual admiration society. 
We don't just come here and say, you look good. How do I look? Oh, you look good too. Well, you, you sound good. Uh, how do I sound? I, you sound good too. You smell good. How do I smell? I smell good. Well, we just kind of all pat each other on the back and say we're all here nice, nice Christians. And so we just gather together and do our little three songs of worship and a nice little sermonette. And then we say amen and we say see you next week. And that's all there is to it. My friend, the Elks Lodge the Oddfellows Lodge, they can do as good as that. That's not what God wants. God wants a living, dynamic force that will make a difference in this world. And he wants you to be a part of what he's doing. Adam, God gave him the power to name. I wish I could go into this. Uh, the the, the uh, science of etymology. Uh, is is powerful. Well, all Adam did when he named people, he or, or, or the beasts, he and the and the fowls of the air, the fish of the sea, he named them, and that name uh, uh, conferred attributes and behaviors on those uh, those uh, creatures that he named. Abraham to Abraham, he granted the power to pray. Can you imagine that? God answered Abraham, who was just a man like you and me, and his power to pray. He, he, he intervened for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. If Abraham said, if, you'll, if you could find 50 righteous in the city, will you spare them? Yes, I'll spare them. 40, 30, 20, 10. Every time God said, I'll spare them. And Abraham thought he was pressing his luck to go any farther than that. But if he would have said, if you could find one righteous, would God have saved or spared Sodom and Gomorrah? It's possible that he would have. But you see, God gave him that kind of power. Never despair of your little weak and, 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 and small voice in your prayer closet. Don't ever think that just you praying is not going to make any difference in the world. God comes to attention. All of heaven stops at the prayer of the saints of God. Hallelujah. Moses, he, he gave Moses the power to triumph. Elijah, he gave the power to perform supernatural miracles. Does God really enfold his mighty acts within the acts of man? I'm telling you, he does. I think of the apostle Peter in prison. The angel came unbeknownst to Peter and to those uh, soldiers that were guarding him came into that prisoner house and I think he kicked Peter on the side and Peter moved around, rolled around a little bit and said, mm, something hurts and uh, kicked him again and finally he, he woke up and looked up and there was an angel staring at him and the angel said, get up he said, I can't get up these, these, these chains are they're gone. And he stood up and said, follow me. Oh, I can't follow you. We've got all these soldiers around. And, and, and they're liable. They're going to hear us. And he looked around and all the soldiers were asleep. Now you imagine that. They were Roman soldiers. And if they were found asleep on the job, they were executed. No questions about it. 
And 16 of them, approximately so, a, a quaternion soldiers, maybe 16 of them, uh, were all asleep. It was uh, astounding that that would have happened. Uh, and the angel said, come on, follow me. Uh, went out through uh, uh, the corridor into the next chamber and on out uh, into the door, into the street. Uh, the door, you see, those doors just swung open. There was evidently God put a little electric eye up there that sensed that they were coming, and when they came up, the door just opened up. And you see, God had that invention long before uh, whoever came up with it in these days. And and so Peter was out there and looked around and said, I'm free. I don't have the chains on my wrists or my ankles, and the soldiers are nowhere to be found. And, and, and he looked around, and the angel was gone. And Peter said, what am I going to do now? I know... There's always a prayer meeting going on down at mother, the mother of John Mark's house. So I'm going down there. And he went down there and knocked on the door. And he didn't know it. I wonder if he surmised it. But he didn't know that on the inside they were having a prayer for him. Somebody must have said they were taking prayer requests. And somebody said uh, after they, they all heard all the hangnail uh, uh, requests and, and, and all of the headache requests, uh, somebody finally said, oh, yes, we don't want to forget Peter because he's in prison and we don't know him. He might uh, get beheaded like James was. And uh, so they began to pray. Uh, and there he stood or uh, showed up at the very door of the place where the prayer meeting was going on uh, because the Bible says, and the church uh, made prayer. Uh, the church uh, went to prayer and God uh, answered their prayer. They didn't believe it. Uh, Rhoda came to the door and said, it's Peter. And they said, she's mad. And they, and they finally, he came, uh, they opened the door and there he he was. God will answer your prayer even sometimes when you don't, you believe he can but sometimes we don't believe he will. I'm telling you today that God is not only able to do it, he will do it if you will pray and keep your faith high in him. God does great things. I often tell the story of my mother. My mother has gone on to be with the Lord now but she was a mighty, mighty prayer warrior. I wish you could have seen her in action. Well, I'm, I, I wish you, you would have been too afraid to see her in action because I was. Sometimes she would, she would uh, weep. Uh, and sometimes she would scream. And she would uh, sometimes uh, crawl around on her knees. Sometimes she'd get up and walk around as bold as a lion and as ferocious as a lion. And, but when she began to pray, God did things. Sometimes when she prayed, she began to speak in tongues, and then God would give her the interpretation of, of those tongues. One particular uh, time, she began to pray, and she began to speak out the name Yoe. Yoe. It made no sense to her, except she had the feeling it was the name of, of a man. And so she began to pray for Brother Yoey or Mr. Yoey or whoever he is, she began to pray. And then she began to pray and God uh, uh, far uh, longer and God began to speak, speak to her out of her the, the word water, water. And she connected the two, Yoey and water. Well, she found out some months later that there was a man named Brother Yoey, Brother James Yoey, 
who pastored in Rapid City, South Dakota, and there were horrific floods in that at that particular time. And he was he's kind of a man's man, and he would just go out and you know throw himself into the into the fray of trying to help people, rescue people, and and that's you know what he loved to do more than anything else. Something you know big and bold and bodacious. And he was out there saving people, and he lost his footing, and he was able only to grab onto a branch that happened to be in hanging over when he felt himself uh, being swept away by that flood. He reached out and grabbed that branch. And, and it so happened that as they begin to p- compare notes uh, that my mother was praying on the very day that that happened and he uh, was uh, a miracle. His salvation was a miracle because somebody, some little old uh, woman that wasn't five foot uh, in height uh, praying in a closet in Jackson, Michigan uh, prayed and God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save this man but I need you to pray. Does God wait on you for your prayers before he does a work? I believe he does. He will use you in a prayer that you don't think goes anywhere, but God hears it. And he saved that man that day. I want to, One more story I want to tell you. Somebody that you might know because she works at the headquarters, Sister Semino, uh, was the missionary's wife in Malawi, uh, I believe it was Malawi, one of the, the countries uh, close there in, in Southern Africa. And Sister Penny Gibbs had come over as a, it wasn't Gibbs at that time, her maiden name, but Sister Penny was there as an aim worker. And while she was there, she contracted malaria and some other disease uh, both of which were terminal. They took her to the hospital, put her on that gurney and rolled her into the, the uh, surgical suite ready to do something, whatever they could, and she died. Sister Simino began to pray. She said, God, this lady came over here, this young woman came over here to Africa to be a light for you, to work for you, and we're not going to send her home in a body bag. So Sister Simino climbed up on top of Sister Penny on that gurney and prayed and prayed and prayed. And about 30 minutes later, Sister Penny, and you can tell her because she's a missionary's wife right now in Malawi, and she will tell you she woke up as a result of Sister Simino praying for her and she sat up and Sister Simino got down and she said I'm hungry I want something to eat God used the prayer of a missionary woman over there in South Africa and said God said I will do the work that you have prayed about I'm telling you today that God has a work for you and that's why he saved you that's why he put you where you are. He said, well, I can't imagine. I don't know why I'm in this particular church. And I don't know why I'm, I'm in the family that I'm in. And I don't know why I have this husband or this wife or these children or these grandchildren or these brothers or sisters. Why? What, what's it all about? If you would stop questioning God as to why and just simply say, I accept that I am here in this situation. I accept the circumstances that they are that I can't do anything about. But what I do not accept is the will of the devil 
soul taking a part or taking hold of me and of my family and of my loved ones. I'm going to do something about it. And you begin to pray. If you will do that, my friend, you get in synergy with God. You get into a working relationship with God. That's why he saved you and he wants you to be a part of his work in this world. Let's stand together. Something worth saving. You look at yourself and say, I don't really have a whole lot to offer. I really don't have much to give to God. But do you know the Bible says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. The acts of God are unfolded within the acts of man. Somehow, I could take you up to a high mountain and show you as Satan did Jesus, the kingdoms of this world show you all of the things that God is doing invisible to most people but it would be apparent to you you would see things happening that would astound you you would see the miracles of God the nuts and bolts of his miracles working as far as you could see God is doing and yet all of that is invisible to the carnal mind. The carnal mind sees nothing but sin, nothing but wrong, nothing but crime. Carnal mind is not attuned to the true purpose of God, which is salvation. And if you have a carnal mind that leads you and informs you how to feel, how to act, how to think, then you will not see yourself as having any value in the kingdom of God. But I urge you this morning somehow, some of you have been saved for many years, and maybe you've never really tapped into the power that resides in you. But I'm urging you this morning to begin to drill down into that power that has always been there, but it's been largely unused and untapped. Begin to see what you have in your life that God placed there, and he placed it there on purpose. God did not just simply randomly and without purpose go through this world and gather up people. God is purposeful. He's intentional. He came here to save, and he saw you as someone that he could save. Will you say, God, I do see the many needs that are around me. I see the needs of my family. I see the needs of this church. I see the needs that our ministries need to be uh, empowered and need to be effective and need to do far more than what we've been able would be have seen to this point. God will enable you through your prayer and through your faith to do things that are far greater than what you've ever imagined. All you need to do is say, God, here I am. 
a willing vessel. Use me. Use me. Use me. If you feel that God is speaking to you today, I wonder if you can make your way up here and stand all across the front of this auditorium and say, God, I definitely want to be a recruit. I want to be right in the middle of it all. I want to be used by God in whatever it is, whatever it is that God has in his purpose in my life. I want to be used of God to do it. God bless you. Come, come and let God do something.